The reading for the day comes from Isaiah 41, 8 through 13. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, whom I love, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I chose you and didn't reject you. Don't fear, because I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will hold you with my righteous, strong hand. All who rage against you will be shamed and disgraced. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will look for your opponents and won't find them. Those who fight you will be of no account and will die. I am the Lord your God who grasps your strong hand, who says to you, don't fear, I will help you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. I want to welcome anybody uh, who might be joining us for the first time or um, for the first time in a long time because of this series. We are um, entering into a new four-week conversation about the Bible and how the Bible has been used um, to harm LGBTQ people and also how to combat that, how to create um, for ourselves an understanding of scripture and an understanding of those specific scriptures that have been used to harm in order to, um, in order to engage those conversations to the extent that we want to and uh, to make sense of our faith. And because of that, um, this is a really delicate topic. Many of us have been harmed directly or um, we've experienced harm indirectly among those we love uh, by misuse of the scriptures. And um, so I'd like to just open up our, our teaching time today by inviting the Holy Spirit to come be with us. So I really want to invite the Holy Spirit not only to come be with me here in, in the studio, um, but also to be with you where you are. And one of the ways that you can invite the Spirit um, into your presence, and really it's more about becoming alive to the Spirit that is already with you, is to get really grounded in your body. So I want to encourage you to um, shift in your body in a way that makes you more aware and more aligned. Um, if you're seated, maybe that means putting your feet on the ground and feeling the ground beneath you. Maybe it means elongating your spine and just um, reaching tall towards the sky. Either way, it probably means breathing intentionally. And so I want you to take a few deep breaths in and long releases out. And I want you to keep doing that, that breath in and out as I invite the Holy Spirit to guide us today. Holy Spirit, come be with us here where I am here, where all your beloved are gathered in your name. God, be with us. Have your uh, holy word um, inspire us to love you, to love ourselves, and to love one another. God, may your wisdom be made evident through the power of the Spirit, through the teachings of Jesus Christ, and through all of your creation made by your loving hand. 
In your name we pray. Amen. All right, now that we are covered in the Holy Spirit, covered in prayer, let us get into this. We are starting this new series, Not Your Abomination, to talk about LGBTQ discrimination. Though, I want to caveat that we're mostly talking about discrimination against people of queer sexualities. Um, We're not going to be getting as much into gender, but that's because the haters haven't quite figured out how how to pin scripture on on trans folks in the same way that they've really refined um, their hate tactics towards um, queer sexuality. So we're going to break down how the Bible is used and how to de-weaponize it. But also, we want to talk about how we can, as queer Christians or straight Christians who love queer people, stay in love with God and feel God's love and remain grounded as we engage anti-queer hate in the church. So why are we having this conversation? Um, I'll, I will be frank with you all. It's not one that I probably would have picked. Um, re- I, I may not have even consented to do this earlier <laughs> in my life. Um, but at this point, I, it's not something I would have picked except for the fact that it is one of our most asked about topics. Whenever we poll Cameron and I, the community, um, about what they want to learn in particular, it doesn't usually come up around sermons. It's not like, hey, we, <laughs> Jonah, we're really aching for a sermon on this, um, which, you know, lucky you, you're getting it in sermon form. But it's, it's usually in workshops or trainings, leadership gatherings that we have at Zao, and it's because people want skills. People are usually looking for a way to engage the queerphobic people in their lives and the kind of haters in their lives are using the Bible to harm or reject LGBTQ people. And so we have folks who are saying like, like train me up and then put me in coach because I want to knock those folks down. Um, And I'm really hesitant to get into that. And I'll tell you why. When I came out as a queer person, um, this is a conversation I didn't put a whole lot of energy into. I mean, I, I had put en- energy into it before I came out. It was around defending others, right? So I would say, like, well, obviously, I'm not gay, but other people have a right to be gay, and, that, and God loves them and made them that way. And so I had some more energy for this when I could make it about not me. Um, but once I came out, I had very little time for people who wanted to debate my existence as a beloved queer child of God made in God's queer image. I just wasn't here for it. And I think there's a really important caveat. Some of that's my personality. Um, But there's a really important caveat here, which is that my immediate family is supportive and required no convincing. Um, And so I understand that that's not everybody's situation. It's unusual and it's a privilege that I had. And because of that, I had a lot of freedom to decide who to engage and who not to engage, including extended family, friends, people in my professional settings, people in my church settings, and even strangers. I got to pick whether or not I was going to debate them about this, and for the most part, I said, no, I'm not going to talk to you about this. Um, And and we'll get into a little bit more later in this teaching why I came to that conclusion. 
Um, but until now, I'll tell you, my, despite my formal training, I've been to seminary twice. <laughs> I have spent cumulatively, I think like six years, in graduate school doing like biblical studies um, and theological training. Despite that, I only had, until now, passing knowledge of the intense debates going on in certain corners of the church about the validity of queer sexuality. And, um, and that's how I liked it, because I just, I was like, this is not worth my time. Now, I got to come at this from a place of, of deep security that God loved me and loved my queerness. And once I got to that place, it just didn't really feel like a good use of my energy to debate with people who, by and large, were not interested in expanding their understanding of scripture or, um, or learning to love me better. But there are other people who I love, including the love of my life, um, who went a different route. So Cameron is one of those people who is functionally at this point like a highly trained um, queer Christian apologist. And, you know, people like Cameron have read scores of books, practically become biblical scholars on this one particular subject, and they tend to know these six or seven passages um, that people reference a lot. They know them inside and out. Those six or seven passages, depends on <laughs> who you're talking to, which ones they include. Some people will only include five. Some people have it, you know, upwards of nine. But they're called the clobber verses. Now, if you are familiar with the term clobber verses, you know exactly why they're called that. But if you're not, you can imagine. They are called the clobber verses because these are individual texts pulled out of a very large book that are used then as a weapon to harm people. And queer people all over the world have felt clobbered by these passages that have been wielded against them time and time again. And so people like Cameron put a lot of energy into this dialogue with folks debating the meaning and interpretation of those six or seven verses. Fun fact, when Cameron and I met, we were in deep disagreement about how to engage this conversation or whether to engage it at all. I insisted that it was a waste of time and energy, that I deserved better from my communities of faith, from my free time, from my time with God, from my time with scripture, and that Cameron deserved better, that you deserved better. It's one of the reasons that Zhao has, from its very inception, not really engaged in debate about queer sexuality, but come from a very firm foundation that God loves and celebrates the queer, beloved children that God created on purpose to be that way. And in terms of our public life as a church, we don't engage in debate about that. But Cameron came along, and Cameron was like, well, some people really do want to learn. And how can we expect anyone to change if we aren't willing to do the difficult, time-consuming work of educating them? How can we expect people to learn to love one another if we won't be in community with them? And honestly, there are strengths to both of these approaches. I personally believe that God called Cameron and I into life and ministry together because we're both right, and we both had room to grow. And we have these complementary views now where we've figured out a way to say, 
hey, we can have unapologetically queer-affirming church that doesn't waste anyone's time on the path of discipleship by demanding that they subject themselves to debates about their validity or existence. And also, we sometimes choose to step out of the safety of that affinity and affirming space to engage in external communities and external conversations and debates so that we can contribute to the ongoing learning of the world around us. And so, you know, here we are. Cameron is now one of the fiercest advocates for saying queer people deserve a space that doesn't question um, their validity or, it, or entertain theories that, that we're going to hell. And uh, here I am um, consenting to an entire four-week series of this conversation because I've come to understand why it's so important to a lot of people. But those of you gathered here with us are probably somewhere in the middle. Maybe you are a queer person yourself trying to make sense of the Bible and of these passages. Maybe you are a straight person trying to make sense of the Bible and of these passages. Maybe you're trying to talk trying to figure out how to talk to people who disagree with you. Um, maybe you're frustrated because you feel like anti-queer Christians know more about the Bible than you do, and you really want to bone up so that you can get in there. Or maybe at some level you have some doubts about whether the haters are right after all, and that causes some deep distress and anxiety. And engaging this conversation is actually a way of engaging your doubt and trying to soothe yourself. So I want to ask you all right now, and you can do this in the chat if you want, um, but I want you to really reflect honestly on why you're here, what you bring to this conversation, to this discussion, and to this learning. And I want to encourage you to get right in your heart, just get honest with yourself, even if it isn't pretty, about why you're here. Because for some of us, Anxiety is driving our presence in this conversation. We're worried. We're worried that the haters are right, and we want to make sure that we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're wrong, because what if they're right? Some of us are here because we're angry, and we're so mad at the ways that people have harmed one another that we want to re-weaponize the Bible, but for our team. That one comes with a lot of self-righteousness. It's energy that I connect to, and it's energy that we need to name. And some of us are here because of insecurity. We're so surrounded with people who are so sure about what the Bible says, and we're maybe not that sure. And even though we know that their certainty is wrong, we're jealous of it, and we want some of that certainty. So Jonah, please just like lay it out. Give me that certainty so that I can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're the ones that are right. And I want you, if, if any of that resonates at all, I want you to take another deep breath. And I want you to take a step back and try and orient yourself, your heart, your spirit towards this new goal. This new goal, the goal that I would like us all to share over the next four weeks as we are engaged in this conversation is to fall more in love with God. To feel more deeply the love that God has for you 
and for all God's people, including queer folks and queer haters. That whenever we are trying to know the heart of God, which is what we are trying to do when we're engaging scripture, that to do so is to fall in love with God and to feel God's love for us, for one another. And that if we are following the teachings of Jesus, which is what makes the scriptures worth, worth reading in the first place, if you ask me, if you identify as a Christian, that's pretty much what got us here, that the goal of all of this should be to love God and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. A word of encouragement as we do this, I want to go back to that scripture reading for today. We picked it for a reason. This text from the prophet Isaiah, speaking in the voice of God, who says, Don't fear, because I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will hold you with my righteous, strong hand. And later God says again, do not fear, I will help you. And so God, we ask you again, help us. Help us to engage in this conversation today and for the next four weeks with a spirit of love, with a spirit of hope, with an openness to knowing you better and to being transformed by your love for all people. Because ultimately, if we're approaching this conversation for any other purpose, it becomes a tool of the devil, a distraction from the God who loves us. And evil loves a good distraction, loves it. So let's not let this conversation, this debate, distract us from the core of the gospel, which is love and liberation for all. But let's keep on the way, on the path, and understand that following Jesus towards a new kind of kingdom might mean learning some new skills, might mean reorienting our relationship to scripture, but ultimately it's toward the purposes of love. So I want to circle back now to some of those um, anxieties that people have about this conversation. One of the things that I hear a lot is, well, these haters, I just, I want to learn everything because they just know so much more about the Bible than I do. And um, what I want to say to that is uh, probably not. Like maybe, probably not. People know surprisingly little about the Bible. Um, and the easiest thing to do, like it's, it's a very big book. This, is, this one's one of mine. I have several. This is my, my most visibly loved. You can see that I have three different kinds of duct tape holding it together. It could probably use another round. Um, but it's very big. And um, so the easiest thing to do, uh, there are people who read it cover to cover. There are people who read it cover to cover every year. But if you're trying to comprehend what you're reading, I, I honestly don't recommend that route. Um, and the easiest thing to do when you've got a text this big and this complicated is to pick a handful of verses, memorize them, and spit them out at one another without any context to prove a point. This approach to the Bible is so popular, it has its own name. It's called proof texting, and it's bad. Um, proof texting is where you say, oh, 
The Bible probably says something about this point I want to prove, right? And so with the help of the internet now, you don't even have to go through these. It used to be you had to go through these big reference books and you'd like search a word and you'd flip to the page. Um, now you can just Google it and be like, what, is, what does the Bible say about X, Y, or Z thing point I'm trying to prove? And you can find things. And you pull them entirely out of context. You memorize them. You spit them at one another. It proves your point, proof texting. And this is how most people read the Bible. Um, and it's, it's really, really frustrating because it then gives you some kind of authority because you're saying, well, I'm quoting scripture. But it doesn't give you any of the background, the context, the meaning behind any of it, except for whatever meaning you came to the text to assign it in the first place. So, so I want you to start from the very beginning with the notion that just because someone can quote scripture at chapter and verse to you, it doesn't necessarily mean they really know scripture in an intimate, life-changing way. They might, but probably not. But what if they do? Okay, so what if you've got somebody who you're like, I, I know that this is, you know, my grandma reads the Bible every night. Like, it's, it's her source of comfort. Like, this, this is, is so important. Like, I know, I know that this person knows their scripture in a way that's beyond these kind of passing references. And if they have that familiarity with the Bible, but they're still coming at you with those six or seven verses to tell you that being queer is wrong, I'm going to contend that they are still reading it wrong. Now, I want to say that this is a bold claim. I understand that. And I want you to know that I'm saying it with compassion and uh, and I don't know if it reads or not, but actually with quite a bit of humility because it's it's very difficult to learn how to discern meaning from this huge book. Um, but and, and I'm not here to trash anyone else's faith, right? Like, you can have a beautiful faith and have a shallow relationship to Scripture. Lots of people do. But when you have a relationship to Scripture that's shallow and you have then low comprehension of what you're reading and then, like, spit it at people in ways that are proving your own biases, supporting structures of oppression, you're harming people. This can have disastrous ends, and I would contend that that's actually how most people engage the scriptures in American Christianity. So if that's not how we do it, if that's not what God intended for us with this beautiful book, then how are we supposed to read scripture? And how do we, as we are doing this work, this um, interpretive work of trying to understand the Bible and its affirmation of queerness, how do we read it? Well, first we have to ask what the Bible is. The Bible um, is a lot of things, but it's not what we often want it to be most. When I was growing up, I heard that the Bible stood, oh man, I don't know if you heard that, but it was a very loud thud. It's heavy, y'all. The Bible, I was told, stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. It's very catchy, right? Um, but that's gross. Like, it's super gross. I'm really bummed out by that idea, basic instructions before leaving earth. It denigrates uh, life and death and the eternal life by saying, like, oh, these are just, you just follow these instructions and rules before you die and then take it into heaven. It's, it bums me out. It's like, 
it's like we think that creation is like some sort of, you know, manufactured product from God where God like stuck the Bible in the glove box for us in case the battery, you know, wouldn't start. That's not the Bible. That's, that's, I feel very strongly about this. The Bible, in fact, is a collection of writings across about a thousand years and many different cultures. And to give you a little bit of a sense of what it means to try and mash together writings across a thousand years through culture which changes, I'd like to share with you a little bit about how our own language, um, the language I'm speaking, English has changed in, in less, less time than that. So um, I'm going to have Cameron put up on the screen something from about 800 years ago. This is Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Is it this side? This side? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Movie magic. All right, so, so this is the, the very first few lines of Canterbury Tales, which was written in 1392. I'm not going to read it to you because I literally can't. Like, I don't, that doesn't, I don't know what that means. I can, with the help of scholarship, interpret it, but I need experts to help me understand what context Chaucer was writing in, what some of these words mean, why he chose words that we don't use anymore, what references he was making. I need scholarly help to determine what this person was saying 800 years ago. So when you think about how long ago scripture was written, it makes sense that we need to rely on historical critical methods and scholarship to make sense of it. And that's 800 years. The span across which the Bible was written includes that and more. And so it would be like having these words from Chaucer in the same book with like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to denigrate the Bible. I was going to use magazine and Twitter references, but you get my point. Writing has changed a lot. We don't even need to go that far back. We could lose the Chaucer if we haven't already. We don't even need to go that far back in English to see how much word and context changes matter. So in the last hundred years, we have used words like Rolodex or talking pictures or icebox or YOLO, which like don't make sense anymore. Like we don't talk that way anymore. And it hasn't really been that long, but those are all references to things that function completely differently. No one talks about the World Wide Web anymore. We just have www in front of all of our websites. So context really matters. And that's not to say that the Bible isn't understandable because it was written too long ago. It's just to say that the Bible isn't straightforward and pretending that we can, in the year 2021, read texts that were written sometimes as many as 3,000 years ago and act as though we don't need some context for making sense of them really dishonors the text. One thing that you'll hear me say a lot if you listen to me talk about the Bible, which I love to do, is that the Bible is a library. It contains lots of different genres. The Bible contains law, narrative, history, but not as we know it in terms of modern history because modern history has rules that 
they didn't follow back then, especially around the importance of facts. But it has a kind of ancient history in it. It has some passages that read like biographies or really more honestly like hagiographies, which are stories told about people that really highlight the best parts rather than the factual parts because that was the point of telling that story. The Bible has letters in it written to different churches in different contexts. The Bible has poetry in it. And the Bible has something called Apocalypsis. This, these are books like Revelation and Daniel. Um, it's a totally different genre than we have anywhere else. It's only in this time period that people write apocalyptic literature. And so it changes the way we read things. We read even differently within the Bible compared to how we read other things in our life. So you read letters differently than you read a story. You read poetry differently than you read history. And you don't read apocalypsis at all outside of the Bible because it is unique to that time. It's weird and trippy. It has, like, everything in it has way too many eyes. Um, there are several layers of metaphorical meaning, usually political and always connected to the time it was written, not some weird distant future starring Kirk Cameron. So when we approach the Bible, we have to honor the different ways that it's trying to communicate with us. And flattening it into one thing is a real bummer. And like, of course, we're going to misunderstand it if we read it that way. Additionally, the Bible disagrees with itself. Anyone telling you that they are reading the Bible literally is giving themselves away as reading it selectively. If you read the Bible literally, you're in a mess really fast. So, let's flip, shall we, to Genesis chapter 1. All right, in the beginning, blah, 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 blah. Chapter 1, Genesis 1, creation story. God creates plants, then animals, then humans. Cool. Chapter 2. Okay, God's creating again. We're telling this story again. And uh, so God creates one human, and then plants, and then animals, and then another human. So we're only two chapters in to this book, and already we have a major disagreement. Like, major, if what we're concerned about is facts. And if you're like, okay, whatever, that's the Old Testament. It's probably a metaphor anyway. Old Testament's weird. Let's skip to Jesus parts. Well, um, Jesus begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, and they all tell various stories, um, perspectives on Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew and Luke have genealogies. This is where Jesus comes from. There are a lot of begats, you know, the lineage, all the important people leading up to Jesus. And uh, in Matthew, we have this beautiful genealogy of Jesus. And then we get to Luke, and we have a completely different genealogy of Jesus. Why? Well, turns out that the book is not supposed to read like a newspaper or a modern history book, and certainly not like a car manual. We want straightforward, literal, non-contradictory facts, and the Bible does not want to give us them. The Bible gives us poetic, nuanced, communal discourse. 
And we read that, and for the most part in American Christianity, we're like, no, thank you, I will call it facts, please, and only use the one I like. But it's actually really beautiful to read it as a dialogue between all the authors and the communities they represent and their understandings of the revelations of God, which come to them not through tablets or magic, but through life and through relationship and communal discernment. So in Genesis, those two stories have different meanings, and they're both true. The author of story one was trying to communicate, God is in charge and can make things happen out of nothing. And then there was light. Like, how cool is that? And in story two, a different author talking about God's work of creating the universe wants to communicate that God is personal and that God is kind of experimenting and that God includes humanity in God's experimenting. Later, we have in the scriptures Jesus disagreeing with the scriptures, which might sound really bananas, but the scriptures existed, many of them, most of it, before Jesus came onto the scene, and he taught and engaged and debated about the scriptures. One of Jesus' favorite phrases is, you have heard it said, but I tell you. That's Jesus disagreeing with the interpretation of scripture, and perhaps with the scripture itself. And then later in the letters to the churches, in the early church, we have more disagreement. You've got Paul saying, just believe. You don't need to do anything. And that's his interpretation of Jesus' teachings. And then James is sort of like, no, your faith, if it doesn't make you a better person, if it doesn't make you show up for people with actions and material support, your faith is useless and it doesn't even matter. And you have these two perspectives, grace without works and, hey, if you're not living out your faith, your, your faith is dead. That's a disagreement that the early church had and it's cataloged in the scriptures so that we will benefit from that conversation. So all of this is to say that when somebody comes at you and tells you there is one way to read the Bible and it is the literal way, they are dishonoring the text. And actually, in a really roundabout, strange kind of way, you're engaging in debate, this conversation of disagreement and difference with your uncle at Thanksgiving or whomever, it's holy. That the goal isn't for us all to be like, oh yeah, there's one meaning, just kidding, the end, I'm a lemming now, I believe it, no questions. Disagreement is actually part of holy community, and that is at the heart of the Bible. That we have these conversations, that we discern together, and we do that through having different perspectives. So if we aren't supposed to read the Bible with proof texting and proving our own points and trying to read it that way. And we're not supposed to read the Bible like an instruction manual. And we have to come at it acknowledging all of this nuance and difference. How do we read this book? Well, we read it with care and intention. We read it in community, knowing that the multitude of perspectives is going to bring a wisdom that we cannot achieve on our own. We include scholarship in that community, and we lean on those people who God has called to interpret the historical context and to teach us more about all of that meaning and nuance that we can't read into it without their help. We read it led by the Holy Spirit, 
we pray and discern. We allow the Spirit to work on us and reveal truth to us, not taking the text at face value, but knowing that there are layers there and that God has promised to work through the text to be honest with us and to invite us into freedom. And finally, we read for the purpose of seeking to know and love God, neighbor, and self. And when we are reading the text for any other reason, we are in dangerous waters. So again, we read carefully, in community, including scholarship, led by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of seeking to know and love God, neighbor, and self. Now, I've just acknowledged that debate and disagreement is holy. But it's also really important to name in this context that it is dangerous. If you are a straight ally, the danger to you is less. You may become very frustrated. You may become disillusioned. But one of the reasons that you might be called to engage in this debate is because you can do it more safely. But if you are queer, we know that this debate can be deadly. This has been proven time and time again, and we have lost beloved children of God to the harm caused by this debate. When you debate the value of someone's existence, it creates so much harm that we see it as violence against our bodies and spirits, and it causes harm and death. If you are experiencing thoughts of self-harm, please DM me and I will work with you to connect you to a professional counselor who can help you navigate this harm that has been caused by these debates and by carelessness about it. It's not anything that you did wrong. It is, it is harm that has seeped its way into your being because, because this debate is dangerous. Beyond that danger that it poses to some in the community, I also want to acknowledge that engaging in this debate, and this is where I was when Cameron met me, may also be a waste of your time. And your time and energy are precious. You need to live and love. You need to pursue your faith. You need to know God and be transformed by God. You need to pursue creativity and joy. You need to build a world of structural justice. You need to be in the streets. You need to be singing. You need to be dancing, whatever it is. You are called to be alive. And in that life, you need to be really clear how much energy God is calling you to divert to this debate. It may take time and energy away from you getting to know Jesus or the scriptures on your own terms, not on their terms. And so I really want to caution you to guard your energy on this because there are a lot of people who are engaging in bad faith. They do not want to know. They do not want to learn. They do not want to seek to love you better. And the more discerning that we can be about that, the more we can protect our precious hearts toward the end of loving God and loving neighbor and loving ourselves. And that is the heart of the gospel, not convincing your neighbor to be less queerphobic. And honestly, when we are 
doing this work, yes, there is some amount of hearts and mind change, but we also want to give more of our energy to structural change because it doesn't matter if my EMT is um, empathetic to my cause if the law still allows them to deny me care because I'm queer. One of the reasons that these debates can go in such a time-wasting direction is because it's actually really difficult to have a disagreement, a productive disagreement, with somebody who has a totally different view of scripture than you do. And so the approach that we've talked, to, uh, talked about today to the Bible, it demonstrates that proof texting these six or seven verses doesn't honor God or the Bible, but that doesn't mean that you don't have tools to engage it. So I promise for the next two weeks, we are going to go verse by verse through those six or through seven verses. Um, and we're going to give you the tools to debate on those terms. But if ultimately you're talking to somebody who just reads the Bible really differently from you, you're not going to be able to convince them. And maybe getting right with that in your own heart will actually be more productive. So I want to ask you again, what do you need out of this conversation? When you're debating your queerphobic former chemistry teacher on Facebook, are you really arguing with yourself? If you want to know for yourself what the scripture says about you or your loved ones, that's great. And that's a different project. So let's be honest about that. Now, some people solve this problem for themselves by going through the step-by-steps of the clobber verses, which we'll do in the next two weeks. For me, that helped to know the context of these verses and to say, like, oh, that's not really about that after all. But it didn't address other really troubling things in the Bible, which, if taken literally, can be really, really problematic. I had to make peace with the Bible as this beautiful complicated mess that points us to God in the same way that people do, imperfectly. This is how God works, by allowing us to participate in our own learning. We got to co-write that book with God, which means that we inserted a whole bunch of stuff that isn't of God. We're messy, and so the Bible is too. That doesn't mean that the Bible is useless. I, I love this thing. It has way more good than bad in it. But it is complicated, and we need to treat it with that kind of honor. And as for queerness, I will lay out for you right now how I come to terms with what I believe is a queer-affirming scripture, including the complexity that allows for those six or seven verses. One, the clarity that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. That is on page one, and it is central to the idea of our relationship to God. And so I believe that my queerness, which I know is inherent to who I am, is a reflection not of my sin or brokenness, but of God's goodness. Two, Jesus' teachings about ethics and how to love I think, affirm my queerness. This is a bigger and deeper conversation, but queerness and love are about how to be good to one another. And I think following Jesus' teachings 
doesn't really dictate who we love, but how. My queerness seeks to be a Jesus-driven ethical queerness. Three, the emphasis on the letters to the churches about love as a set of actions and orientations of the heart rather than rules. Again, it doesn't preclude different kinds of love or different kinds of relationship. It calls us to an extremely high standard of kindness and generosity and self-reflection and self-sacrifice. That is the kind of queerness that I am called to embody as a Christian. Four, the overarching theme of scripture, which is liberation towards justice for all. All of those things, all in that book, across way more than six or seven verses, has convinced me that queer love can be beautiful and godly, just as any love can be beautiful and godly when it is ethical, when it is following after Jesus' own heart, when it is embodying that God image. And so, yeah, I think that the scriptures affirm my queerness and the queerness of all of God's beloved. But the last thing that I want to communicate is that if you are queer and you doubt God's love for you, that unfortunately that is really normal. And it may not have anything to do with your queerness. I meet so many people, queer and straight, that express conviction that God loves other people but can't seem to believe that God loves them. And I want to ask some folks to be bold in the chat today and share if you are one of those people that is so convinced that God loves everyone on this chat, but sometimes you doubt it for yourself. This doubt that so many of us carry about whether we are lovable by God, it's something we need to address. But we can't let some other person in our life, some other narrative, some, you know, history of the church's failure to interpret the scripture, get into our heads and distract us into thinking that it is about our sexuality. You are beloved by God. And one of the greatest hurdles of faith for any human being is to truly believe that. And this conversation that says that six or seven verses are the reason that you doubt, that is a distraction from the devil. Because the real project here is to open ourselves to the love that God does have for each and every one of us. And we cannot let this debate derail us in our search for that love. I'm going to leave it here for today. Again, the clobber verses are coming next week and the week after, so buckle in. But again, I want to leave you one last time with that encouragement from the prophet Isaiah. Hear these words from God. Don't fear, because I am with you. Don't be afraid, because I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. I will hold you with my righteous, strong hand. Do not fear, God says. I will help you. You are beloved. Amen. <laughs>